I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take with a down, dairy, 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 down, down? Hello and welcome again to Three Ravens Haunting Season, a month-long celebration of ooks, spooks, the season of the witch and all things chilling and weird. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm ringing my house with black salt, letting my sage stick smolder and purifying the air while my co-host Martin Vaux rings a bell to drive off unwanted visitors. Only friendly spirits here, thank you very much. <laughs> Now, we should start the episode in the traditional way by saying a hello and welcome to our new supporters on Patreon, who, as it's haunting season, will enjoy our seasonal Halloween greeting. So, hello to Belinda, Marie, Brian, Zinnia, and Dragon Turtle GM. All hail, Belinda, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail, Marie, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail, Brian, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail, Zinnia, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail, Dragon and Turtle GF, Dark Lord of Patreon. As always, if you would like to support the podcast, then do please consider signing up to our Patreon, where you'll find loads of exclusive content, including all of our episodes early and ad-free, our stories as text versions, our monthly newsletter, and monthly exclusive episodes like last week's Film Club episode about Robert Eggers' most excellent folk horror movie, The Witch, and monthly exclusives like the Rye Ghost Tour we released earlier in October. And of course, after tomorrow's Super Sour in Halloween special, we'll be taking a break from Three Ravens, mm. releasing some compilation episodes and our second listener episode during November. Thank you very much to everyone who sent in stories. It's going to be jam-packed oh, with so good. 
fun folklore. But we will still be releasing a new Patreon exclusive and a film club episode at the end of the month, which for November will be all about Guillermo del Toro's truly outstanding Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. Plus, the new Three Ravens newsletter will come out on the first of the month, as always, packed with the month's folk customs, a new tarot spread and magic spell to try, and much, much more. So plenty to enjoy for our lovely supporters on Patreon across November for just $3 a month or $6 a month via patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to review the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts and the various podcast apps. More on that after this week's stories. And thank you also to those of you who've sent us photos of your carved pumpkins for this Halloween via three ravens podcast at gmail.com. They look amazing. They do. Hopefully everyone has seen those we've shared so far, but please do send yours through and we'll likewise share them on our social media tag them hashtag three ravens haunting season then in the coming days we'll pick our favorite three and send those carvers a limited edition three ravens haunting season mug now as you likely know by now these haunting season episodes are a bit different to our usual episode format featuring two new original stories each week one from me and one from Martin, with order determined by a coin toss. So for the last time this year then, Eleanor, what are you going to call? Heads or tails? I'm going to call heads this time. OK, and in case you're curious, from my coin collection this week, we have a 1972 Tanzanian five shilling coin, which is a very beautiful coin. How See, many sides has it got? Oh, goodness. Too many to count, really. But it's got corn on it and ox. It's a very, very pretty coin. So you've called heads. I've called heads. Oh, heads it is. Well then, in that case, that means I'm going first with my story for this week, The Five Minute Call, Mm -hmm. which will be followed by Martin's most excellent story, The Rotten House. So we'll be back at the end to have a chat about the stories and to share some of the lovely reviews we've received. So please do stick around. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Ladies and gentlemen of the Caterina Cesaroni Company, the house is now open. The house is now open. Please do not cross the stage. Thank you. The cheery voice of the deputy stage manager came over the crackly comms in the dressing room. Her voice sounded tinny through the tiny speaker. Hugo heard it with his eyes closed as Sarah, the makeup artist, stroked powder over his eyelids with a fluffy brush. It never ceased to surprise him when he opened his eyes and saw somebody else looking back at him a weaselly somebody with a pallid countenance and deep bags under the eyes. Hugo knew full well that he didn't look like that. He always made sure he got eight hours sleep and he hadn't had a drink for five years, not since the incident at Angelica's wedding. He had never looked better. Of course, it was Sarah's job to make him look hollow and haunted. Hugo liked Sarah a lot. She was effortlessly filled with joy, despite the bad weather, terrible digs and lukewarm reviews. He'd once asked her how her day was going and she'd quite seriously told him that she had a good day every day. Hugo admired that kind of relentless positivity, although he couldn't emulate it. The single pane of glass rattled in the window frame as the wind lashed the miserable streets of Rockridge. It was fair to say that the tour wasn't going particularly well. Hugo knew that it had been hard for the company to scrape the funding together to tour Caterina Cesaroni, relying on all sorts of arcane connections to crumbling trusts and foundations as well as a very limited offering from the Arts Council. 
It wasn't an easy thing to sell, he supposed. A little-known opera without a chorus, which the director had decided to set in a depressing, non-specific military dictatorship, wasn't the easiest thing to sell to audiences in a series of dilapidated regional theatres. This latest, the Gloucestershire Grange Theatre, seemed to be the most dilapidated of all. The Gloucestershire Grange was Victorian, and Hugo couldn't imagine that it had ever been particularly wonderful, even at its grand opening. It was small, with narrow corridors and low ceilings, with electric light bulbs rammed haphazardly into the old gaslight fittings. Plaster crumbled around them, revealing wiring which looked as though it had been shoved in hopefully at best. The corridors and dressing rooms were wallpapered in tobacco-stained brown, possibly to hide patches of damp. Stuffing poked out of the chairs. Dear Lord, Hugo had heard Alice Belinska exclaiming when they'd arrived. They didn't tell us we'd be slumming it this badly. This is bloody horrendous. For God's sake, tell me there's a bar. No, I'm not going in that one, Carolina. It looks as though someone's died in it. Give it to Tim for crying out loud. She was theoretically half Polish, but Hugo wondered if it was a stage name bestowed on her by her agent, as she sounded as plummily posh as an English aristocrat. He didn't much care for her. She had a brilliant, bell-like soprano voice, but a suspicious, foxy little face, and she kept forgetting who he was. He had to admit that she was right about the first dressing room the company manager had offered her, though. It definitely looked as though somebody had died in it. Tim, the tenor in the role of Caterina Cesaroni's love interest, Umberto, had grudgingly gone in there, muttering that he hoped the stain on the carpet was stage blood. Backstage was arranged across three floors, with three tiny individual dressing rooms on each. It perpetually smelt as though there had been a leak, and the sinks and toilets were just as likely to produce brownish bubbles as flush anything away. There was no capacity for a chorus in the Gloucestershire Grange, so it was almost just as well there wasn't one. Hugo missed the chorus, missed the feeling of being part of a large, good-natured family. There was always somebody to go for a drink with after rehearsal, and there was a sensation of being part of a wonderful swell of sound and colour when they were all on stage together. He was grateful for the opportunity for a role, however, even if it was a little lonelier. It was also fair to say that since graduating music college, Hugo's career as an opera star had been going only slightly better than this tour. He had hoped that this role would be his chance to be spotted. He'd imagined the offers from new, more proactive agents and glowing five-star reviews. Newcomer Hugo Deloria shines in a part one wishes had more stage time. Deloria feels like the glue holding the production together. But one of the three reviews had spelt his name wrong, and the other two hadn't mentioned him at all. It wasn't much of a part, in fairness. It was very much the smallest role, and Hugo's dressing room position reflected it. There were only six of them in the cast, so Hugo had ended up with a dressing room on the top floor furthest away from the stage, up two flights of treacherous and badly lit stairs. He was on his own, which ought to have been pleasant and have given him a feeling of importance, but it didn't. He might be able to warm up as loudly as he liked, but in the few days they'd been working at the Gloucestershire Grange, Hugo had come to dread dressing room seven. Ladies and gentlemen of the Caterina Cesaroni Company, this is your half-hour call. You have 30 minutes. Thank you. 
Sarah finished his makeup, and Hugo cautiously opened his eyes. The face in the mirror, weakly illuminated by bulbs, wasn't his. She'd done an excellent job, as usual. His cheeks were hollow, and his eyes lividly bright in their dark, sunken sockets. There were black, bushy brows glued on top of his own sandy brown ones, and a smattering of stippled stubble on his own carefully shaved jaw. His lips looked thin and pale, and his whole complexion was sallow, almost jaundiced. Tommaso, Hugo's character, was an unpleasant little snitch, skulking around in the shadows of the main storyline, and Sarah had thoroughly transformed him. Despite Tommaso's personality defects, he did have a fantastic aria in Act 2. The lights around the mirror hissed and flickered suddenly, making Hugo jump. Ready for the wig, my lovely, Sarah said, reaching for the wig head with Tommaso's lank, greasy black locks perched on it. Hugo had stopped by the old kitchen which wardrobe and wigs were using as their base to say hello to her earlier and seen her lovingly spritzing sea salt spray onto it to make it look even more horrendous. Whenever you are, Hugo said, although he actually wanted to say anything which would delay Sarah in her work and prevent her leaving the dressing room. Hey Sarah, he said as she clipped back his hair and put the wig cap on. Do you believe in ghosts? Sarah pursed her shiny red lips together. She always looked glossy and finished, bouncy blonde curls in perfect twists and full black mascaraed eyelashes. Hugo had been trying to work up the courage to ask her to go for a drink with him since the tour had started. Mm, not really, she said. My nana's into crystals and guardian angels and all that, and she always says that when you see a robin it's the spirit of one of your departed loved ones. I'm not convinced. This old theatre's the kind of place that might be haunted though, don't you think? Hugo said. He wasn't sure why he was talking about this. He should have been asking her about her interests outside wigs and makeup and trying to find out if she was single. But for some reason, he felt an almost desperate need to communicate some of the fear he'd experienced the previous three evenings. You sound like Alice, Sarah said, laughing and showing her small white teeth. I think it's cosy. It's so fun getting to work in all these different places, isn't it? How does she do it? Hugo wondered, as the rain lashed against the dressing room window, which looked over an unprepossessing alley full of bins. Rockwich was a depressed seaside town, and earlier Hugo had seen a pair of seagulls fighting over a rotting container of greenish half-finished pizza. How does she stay so optimistic? Something, perhaps a gust of wind from the poorly fitted window, made all the coat hangers in the alcove rattle and bounce against each other. Hugo looked sharply behind him in the mirror, thinking he saw somebody in there, but it was just the shadow of the black leather trench coat Tommaso wore in the first half. Hugo had been avoiding putting it on until the last possible moment as it made him sweat buckets. So windy tonight, Sarah said. We'll get blown away walking back along the seafront later. She effortlessly steered the conversation away from ghosts to how much she was looking forward to their next venue, a theatre near her cousin's house in Milton Keynes. She was hoping to get her cousins in to see the show. Sarah was one of those people with a vast extended family that all got together and celebrated each other's birthdays, anniversaries, christenings and sports days. 
Hugo tried to imagine what it would be like to be part of a big, noisy, loving family like that, and failed. Ladies and gentlemen of the Katerina Cesaroni Company, this is your 15-minute call. You have 15 minutes. Thank you. A churning feeling, something akin to stage fright, performed a violent dance in Hugo's stomach. Time was ticking on, and Sarah had finished pinning his wig. He liked the touch of her hip lightly pressed against his shoulder. He wished he could run his hand up her leg in its gleaming black tights. He wished he could make her stay. Nothing would happen if Sarah was there. She was too bright, her spirit too untroubled for anything from the dark to touch her. All done, Sarah said, patting the wig. She gathered up her kit quickly, sponges, brushes, wipes and pins all disappearing into her toolbox. She would go back to wait for her first cue with Leslie from wardrobe. Toy toy lovely, you'll be brilliant. See you for the quick change. Hugo had a quick change at the side of the stage, where he had to appear bruised and bloodied. That meant he had a bit more time with Sarah, armed with a head torch and an array of gore and silicon to produce the effect. Make her stay, make her stay, make her stay. Thanks, Sarah, Hugo heard himself say weakly. See you later. You have a good one too. Sarah was gone in a whirl of ringlets and Hugo was left alone. The dingy little room seemed even more drab without her presence to lighten it. He opened his phone and looked nervously at the time, experiencing, as he still did when he was stressed or worried, the urge to call Angelica. There was still a few minutes before it started. If it started. There was always the hope that it might not, of course. Hugo would have liked to preempt it by going downstairs early, but there wasn't enough room in the wings or the corridor behind to lurk. It would only be in everybody's way, and the company manager had asked that they keep to the dressing rooms where possible to avoid a fire risk. Hugo sang a few arpeggios and some bars from his aria, Si, lasciali bruciare tutti. He wondered if anybody would come out to see Caterina Cesaroni and her tragic fate on such a filthy night. The auditorium hadn't looked much more comfortable than backstage. He looked at his phone again. Where would Angelica be now? Probably curled up with Will, drinking red wine after a day of rehearsals for the traviata she was doing at the garden. He remembered the last conversation they'd had at her 33rd birthday party. She seemed so happy, cutting the cake Will had iced with music notes and drinking her favourite burgundy. I really hope you find someone, Hugo. He wondered what she'd make of his crush on Sarah. She'd always been a bit disdainful of singers getting friendly with dresses and wiggies. No, he couldn't call Angelica. And then, the words that he'd been dreading sounded through the comms. Ladies and gentlemen of the Caterina Cesaroni Company, this is your five-minute call. You have five minutes. Thank you. I could go down now. Hugo thought desperately. Nobody would mind. It was then that he noticed a hairbrush lying on the dressing table in front of him. It was an old-looking bristle brush and didn't look like it belonged with the rest of Sarah's kit, but she left it behind. Relief flooded through Hugo. He had an excuse. He could go down to running wigs and return it to her. He picked it up, and then he saw the hair tangled in its bristles. The hair was grey and stiff with grease and pomade which gave off a sickly smell like rotten oranges. 
As Hugo held the brush, it seemed as though the hair was beginning to move, winding itself around the bristles and over the wooden edges towards Hugo's fingers in serpentine tangles. Sarah hadn't left the brush behind. It was starting. Hugo flung the brush down on the dressing table and tried to stand, but it was just as it had been before. He was riveted to his chair by a kind of heaviness, almost as though somebody was sitting on him. A kind of paralysis overtook him just as it had at the five before the previous performances. He could barely even turn his head, but was forced to stare straight ahead at the dressing table before him and the mirror reflecting anything which happened behind him. The hairbrush had landed in a soft dusting of the translucent powder Sara used to set Hugo's makeup. He scarcely dared to breathe as the powder began to move as well, with the same meandering rhythm as the hair. It was being dragged and rearranged. It didn't seem to be spelling anything out, but it was as though an invisible finger was being slowly but surely pulled through the powder towards Hugo. It continued until it reached the edge of the table, and Hugo felt a push against his ribcage as though someone or something was poking him. When the pressure moved away, there was a dot of face powder on his clothes. Hugo had a horrible feeling of being marked somehow, like somebody who had been identified as a victim, of plague perhaps, or a pogrom. The feeling of being sat on was easing. The weight was leaving him but Hugo was still locked in place as though his arms and legs were fused with the chair. He stared into the mirror and saw the shape of a figure rising from his own. It looked as though he was standing himself until it became quite clear that the standing shape was someone entirely other. He had a stocky, burly form and was dressed in a thick, knitted jumper. There was something about him that had reminded Hugo of an old-fashioned sailor until he'd realised he was associating the clothes with the costume worn by the lead in a production of Peter Grimes he'd sung in at college. The man's face was bearded and twisted into a glowering frown. Hugo had the impression of a red face, although there was no colour to the man standing somehow both on and behind him. He was all grey as though Sarah had spent hours covering him in makeup. The man leaned down towards Hugo, his frowning face splitting into a foul leer which seemed to invite complicity. Hugo was so sure he wasn't really there, just as he had been the previous night and the night before. He couldn't be there. And yet, it all felt so real as that big bearded face came closer and Hugo smelt the rancid sweetness of a cold breath, thick with the perfume of oranges, and felt the chill of a wet mouth closing around his ear, and heard the rough intimacy of the whisper. Sì, lasciare bruciare tutti. Hugo well recognised the opening words of his aria, and their translation. Yes. Let them all burn. He squeezed his eyes shut, unable to bear the closeness of the presence and that sweetly stinking breath. The phantom's mouth lingered by his ear and neck, 
almost as if it was trying to drink in the spiking music of Hugo's pulse. Then it was suddenly drawn away, and Hugo opened his eyes a crack, just in time to see the figure moving away towards the alcove with the hanging rail. There were two coats there now. The shape of a heavy wool naval coat hung next to Hugo's costume, swinging lightly on its hanger. There was a pale grey stain of makeup on its collar. Hugo watched as the figure lumbered over to the coat and pulled it on. Then it stood just in front of the alcove, its glittering, colourless eyes fixed on Hugo's in the mirror. Ladies and gentlemen of the Katerina Cesaroni Company, this is your beginner's call for Act 1. Beginners to the stage, please. Miss Belinska, Mr. Geraldoni, Miss Garcia, Mr. Edwards, Miss Vanderlinden, Mr. Deloria, this is your call. Standby stage management and technical staff, thank you. Sound and sense flooded back into the dressing room as the deputy stage manager's voice broke the spell. The figure was gone. Hugo leapt from the chair, no longer frozen in position. He could hear the faint noise of the orchestra tuning up. Frantically, he brushed at the finger mark of powder on the front of his costume, trying to get rid of the impression that he'd been marked out. Not wanting to go near the alcove where the coat had hung and the figure had disappeared, Hugo snatched his trench coat from the hanger without looking at it and rushed for the dressing room door. He would change rooms tomorrow. He had to. He ran down the dangerous stairs, two at a time, and almost skidded into the prompt side wing. He saw Alice Belinska in her russet silk dress as Katerina Cesaroni, and Jimmy Edwards in his medals and jackboots as the villainous Salvatore. He saw the conductor raise his hands on the monitor, and heard the smattering of applause and the opening, growling bass of the overture. And at the DSM's queue, he squared his shoulders and stepped out into the light. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
It's amazing how much damage water can do. You probably know this if you've had a leak, a hole in your roof. A pipe that's split behind a wall somewhere or under a floorboard. You'd think it would take its time, and sometimes it does. The wetness building and building until something gives way. But just a little drip, a little trickle, a regular tap, tap, tapping can ruin a life. And in my line of work, I knew that going into that place, but even so, I could never have imagined the havoc it unleashed. This was a while back, mind, when I was doing vulture work. I don't do that kind of thing anymore, mind, not since that last one. But back then, well, it was my bread and butter. Even before then, I used to do gig work. I'm a plumber, first and foremost, but I can turn my hand to most things. Plastering's a misery, but I'll do it. Electrics are fine, and I'd rather handle it myself than let another sparky in. They're difficult people. And chip work, tiling, bricks, all that. I've learned to do it all. I hate the exam for the gas certificate. I have to take it every year, and I curse it every time. But... These days I keep the boxes ticked and my nose clean. That's these days, of course. I wasn't always like that. I don't really want to talk about the deep past. It isn't important to what happened. But let's just say, when I was a kid, I couldn't focus. Books and reading weren't my thing. And growing up in North London, there was always opportunities to make a few bob here and there. Running with this lot dodging that lot, holding something for someone, taking an item from one place to another, you know. And when you make your money that way, it's a matter of time until it catches up with you. So I did my time, came out, and getting clean work then was impossible. That's not just me. Thousands of people up and down this country are in the same leaky boat truth is though, London, like every city and every town, only survives because of dirty work. People in office blocks don't think about the people working under their feet, shifting fatbergs in the sewers, or the cleaners late at night or early in the morning. The bin men, street sweepers, care workers, the people who get their hands dirty for a few pieces of tin. Without them, without us, the streets would fill with filth. It's a disgrace what the world thinks we should earn, so little for the work we do. Well, nobody, and I mean nobody, could do their work without us. The bankers, politicians, businessmen, all of them, they walk on the streets we clean, climb the steps we've built and fixed, ride elevators we wipe down and service. Most people are oblivious, ignorant to the filth, because it's our job to keep it hidden from view. But when you've been in it, you know it, and the stink of it never really leaves you. But I'm no mug. I don't work for minimum wages or PAYE. Back then, I worked solo anyway, just me and my tools and my van. I don't want to say quite how I met my employer at the time, but... Let's just say we were introduced by mutual acquaintances. I'll call him Mr. Panayotis. That's not his name, so don't bother Googling. And across London, there's hundreds of men like Mr. Panayotis. 
they're businessmen in their own way, focused on making profit, on looking after their families. And the less you know them, and the less they know about you, it's probably for the better. I only really met him face to face once at one of his restaurants. People said he owned half a green lanes, but you never know what to believe about that sort of thing. Pool halls, corner shops, chicken shops, kebabs, all that stuff. Good cash businesses, which, if you ever visit, are surprisingly empty of customers. And that's the thing about cash. Like water, it flows. And lots of little drips can form into streams, and those streams make floods. Money follows money too, as everybody knows. If you're smart, you can take a little, turn it into more, and if you diversify, you can get rich. Me, I never wanted to be rich. Being rich comes with problems. The need for protection, for example. And I knew plenty of blokes who went into that racket, chasing people down with shooters, buttonholing people at their front door. I knew one guy, he ended up in a street fight with Ethiopians on Haringey Ladder, running down streets, hacking at each other with machetes, all over something that happened at a wedding. Lost three of his fingers, that bloke, and he was not a relation, but he was part of the family, which comes with benefits and a great many perils. Plus, the more money you have flowing in, the more you have people you don't know come sniffing round you and yours. Walls at the gates, so to speak. Ghosts at the edge of the feast. Or, worst of all, you can get tangled up with the police, and I hate the smell of bacon. Still, if you have enough money, it can insulate from all that. Pay for bodies to be around you, put themselves between you and the harm. Even then, you're stuck, because if your flow of cash stops... Your people will scatter, leaving you exposed. And even when you're surrounded by supposedly loyal bodies, you still never know who to trust. Fingers get pointed, some get cut off, and before you know it, there's blood in the gutters and bodies slumped in alleyways. And that's how I ended up working alone, because I don't trust anyone these days. And I think Mr. Panayotis, well, I think he respected that about me. The arrangement we had was very simple. Mr. Panayotis would find me work. He'd have people keep an eye on me to make sure I was doing it, and if I kept to schedule, then he'd pay me, and pay me well. £500 a day, steady as a clock, each week's wages arriving in cash in an envelope handed over by someone I made sure I didn't recognise. And that first meeting we had, charcoal burning in the background, meat hissing on the grill, kebabs turning in the windows, He said very little. Powerful people are like that. Quiet. But I'll never forget him. Rosy cheeks, smiling, white hair, grey suit, firm handshake. We made a deal, and so long as I did my work, the jobs would keep coming. Vulturing is a decent enough racket, and like any good business, there's ways you have to work for it. For Mr. Panayotis, I knew or guessed that he had someone working on the ambulances, probably a paramedic or something. Still, he'd get the call from this gopher, or one of his people would, and he'd look up the details of the building, make sure he was the first to make an offer. Not to say it was ever him first hand, but one of his people would. 
Sometimes he'd pick the places up at auction. Sometimes he'd make a cash offer to whoever stood to inherit. Sometimes trading through this company or that. Each of them with a boring name, opened one year, dormant for dozens, closing another, with brief patches of furious trading and bankruptcy. A constant shifting shell game with money appearing and disappearing. Some to the bloke in the ambulance who found the bodies. Some to drivers, bean counters, lawyers, muscle, contractors, suit wearers and so on. And some, of course, at the end of the day, would come to me. The key from my end was that they'd find a house that nobody wanted to own. People think because it's London that properties are all desirable, but that's not the case at all. The city's old and so is its plumbing, so regularly Mr. Panayotis would find me places where sewage pipes had burst, say, or drains had backed up into floods, and all that was fine in its way, but the real jackpot was when you found a proper vulture house, one with a death, and the grottier, the better. As any paramedic will tell you, there's a lot of grotty deaths in any city. Suicides, heart attacks, murders for sure, but more often than not, it's deaths of poverty. The quiet heart attack in a house where a lonely person lives and nobody thinks to look. People talk about how in a city you're never more than 10 feet from a rat. Well. I reckon you're never a hundred feet from a corpse, and the longer they go undiscovered, the better it was for me. This particular house, the one where it happened, was one of the best examples I'd ever seen. By that I mean it was one that had ended up in the worst imaginable condition. It had been owned by a single man, Leslie Alterman, who was, by all the mess he left, not all right in the head. He'd inherited the house from his mother, lived there all his life, and scraped by on benefits on account of his various conditions. He worked a bit, I could tell from the supermarket uniform in his wardrobe, but he'd let the place fall into ruin long before he died, and the manner of his death was particularly unpleasant from a resale perspective. When I got the keys, I went and surveyed it, and it was horrendous. Don't get me wrong, horrendous is normal. To do vulture work, you need a full hazmat suit, by which I mean hazardous materials. You want heavy, thick rubber boots you can hose down, and a suit that seals, and a full visored respirator to wear under a tightly fitted hood. Of course, by the time I got there, the cops had been through and taken the mail that piled up on his doormat, that's standard procedure, and cleared away the body itself, such as it was you could still see the outline of where he'd lain for all that time. Over a year, they said, judging by the date on his bills. The cause of his death was left open in the end, because the coroner couldn't come to any clear conclusions, understandably so. That's pretty normal when you're dealing with that level of decomposition. But what everyone did know was he died on the toilet, falling forward onto the tiles of his bathroom floor. He'd been naked at the time and about to have a bath. He knew that as he'd set the water running and the tub had filled up, the overflow taking most of the water, but for the days and weeks and months that followed, the taps ran faster than the overflow could drain, meaning, little by little, the water spilled over the rim onto the tiles and flooded the place. 
Leslie's body had been caught in the water, of course, and that was what made the job as grotty as it was. Because a human corpse, when it rots, stinks in a way you can't really imagine. People think a dead cat stinks or a fox, but people are a whole other matter. Like gone off meat mixed with putrefied fruit. And because the water kept flowing, the rot from the corpse kept seeping out, dripping through the house, in the cavities between the walls, through the floorboards, across the landing, down the stairs. Poor bloke hadn't closed the bathroom door, which I never do when I'm home alone, so you can't blame him, but all that meant that over time, what had once been the entire, whole, single corpse, the dead body of Leslie Alterman, eventually came to pieces, becoming a kind of toxic soup that seeped into everything. Parts of him floated out towards the top of the stairs, mould forming up the walls and round the body. The colours you get from that kind of rot are wild, almost beautiful in a way, especially because he left all his windows closed. No ventilation, even in a draughty old place like that one, meant that before long the skirtings, banisters, cornices, everything, all of it started to sprout and grow. And all the while, people were walking by on the street outside with no idea. Just another crappy looking house with dirty net curtains, lights on upstairs, the garden grown into a wilderness of sorts. And, if you listened closely, the sound of taps running. What did it, in the end, was the bath falling through from upstairs. It wasn't a really heavy one, not an old iron tub like the Victorians, but it was porcelain, so weighty. And in due course, after all that time, the wet floorboards just gave way. The bathroom was in the middle of the house, up on the first floor landing, so when it fell, it made a hell of a noise, smashing into the kitchen downstairs in the middle of the night, waking Mrs. Sherman, the neighbour. Like a lot of these places, the house wasn't on a great street. To one side, there was a garage, or what was meant to be a garage, but was really a lock-up or a tax dodge or something involving land rights or whatever. What I mean by that is, although there was a building there, post-war, it wasn't in use. Meanwhile, on the other side, there was an almost identical house to the Altamans, split into flats, and it was one of the neighbours there that called the cops. I later met her, Mrs Sherman, because she came round to complain about the noise carrying her little yappy dog, Festus. And all day long while I worked, that dog yapped and yapped, but I wear earplugs most of the time and and that kind of drowned it out. Anyway, as you might imagine, my first job was clearing what was left of Leslie off the walls, the floors from behind the wallpaper. Mr. Panayotis kept a keen interest, calling me on the Nokia brick he'd given me, palmed off by some faceless bloke in a hood. And one Nokia brick would then be swapped after a few weeks for a new one just the same. So, anyway, I filled Mr. Panayotis in about how I'd started downstairs, pulling up the floorboards in the hall because the ones already there had soaked right through and weren't safe to stand on. I went through a lot of skips, let's put it that way floorboards first, then the hallway walls and the stairs. Don't get me wrong, I went up to the landing to have a look and see the carnage in full, the frills of yellow-green growth, the black mould covering every last surface, spidering out across the ceilings. But I just did the usual otherwise, knocking back, chiselling away, washing, sanding, cutting, replacing, working my way around the building slowly but surely, 
systematically, I like to think of it. Saving what was salvageable, replacing what needed replacing. Nothing terribly interesting about all that. One thing I was happy about was the place didn't have a cellar. I hate cellars, they creep me out. But under that place there was just good old-fashioned North London clay. And sure, the pipe work needed lots of work, not least as the plan was to split the place into flats to maximise profit. But to start with, I wanted to make it safe. So I cut and capped most of the intake, working out how to make the most rooms out of the available floor space, hoping not to have to bodge too much, because I like to do good work and you never want complaints. Anyway... It was a typical Victorian terrace turned into a semi by virtue of a bomb in World War II. That's why there was a garage that wasn't a garage next door, because Fritz had blown up the rest of what had once been next door. Whoever had patched up the Ultimates place had done a decent job with the brickwork, so my job was simple. I carved up the space downstairs, kitchen to be at the back, toilet in the middle, bedroom up front, and was about to do the same thing upstairs when I noticed something funny. See, I'd not really thought about it until I was setting to work on the first floor, but once I got there, I realised the floor plan and the rooms and the doors, it didn't match up with downstairs. There was a room at the back, fine, that was normal. It overlooked the railway line at the end of the scraggy garden Leslie had left behind, stacked with cat and dog bowls, but I didn't go there really. Gardens aren't my thing. Although the trains going by did shake the place a bit when they rolled through day and night. Anyway, there was that room at the back, like I said, then the bathroom in the middle, which needed the most work, as I'm sure you can imagine, no floor. Then the landing led along to what had once been Leslie's room at the front, with a door to the right leading up to the attic. But I realised to my surprise that there should have been an extra room there, a room to the left. What I mean is, there was a room missing, and I swear to you now, I wish I'd never found it. It was the strangest thing, and I'd never seen anything like it before or since, because I'm sure you can imagine, one of the first things I did was strip back the wallpaper, which was soaked from the bottom up with rot. It came away from the plaster in dirty strips, packed with hair, shot through with mould. And then I ran dehumidifiers, hoping that maybe, just maybe, I'd be able to dry out some of the walls enough that I could just paint them over without having to plaster and hope nobody noticed. When I looked at that wall, the one on the left-hand side of the landing, well, if there ever had been a door there, I would have seen its shape in the plaster. It would have dried, cracked around the edges. Instead... No doubt about it, whatever door which once had been there was bricked up and then plastered over, leaving an entire room sealed behind that wall. Of course, when I called Mr. Panayotis to tell him, he was happy in his quiet, sly kind of way. As far as he was concerned, more rooms meant more money, a two-bed flat instead of a one-bed with a kitchen at the back. And of course, he wanted me to cut into the room and find out what was in there. I wish I'd never told him. I wish I'd left the damn place alone. Anyway, cut into it I did. Mrs Sherman coming by to make a fuss, which was fair enough on that occasion because the saw I was using made a hell of a racket going through those bricks. The wine shuddered right through to your bones and I could tell it was driving a dog crazy, the barking and barking, so she came round. 
How long are you doing this? She said, holding Festus, looking at me through her half-blind eyes. And while she was there, she peered around like she was looking for pieces of Leslie in the walls or cracks in the floorboards. Not long, I told her. Never did I have this noise with Leslie. He was a good person, quiet person, always feeding cats from whole neighborhood out in garden, saying, oh, you're a naughty one, oh, you're a naughty one. Never right upstairs, Leslie, but good and quiet. I knew if I didn't get back to work, Mrs. Sherman would stand there talking to me for hours, like I was interested in tales of her daughter up in Leeds or her life in the old country. And it's not like I let her into the house. She just came in, barging through, accosting me with a great string of sentences. So I nodded to her, picked up my circular saw and started cutting again at the bricks. And that was when Festus, her little dog, went crazy. It bit her and she gasped, the dog jumping out of her arms and running all round the house, yapping and snarling, racing through rooms. I told her to keep a handle on that damn dog, not least as I'd not cleared Leslie's room out yet, but after running downstairs and back up, the dog made a beeline for it, jumping on the dead man's bed and knocking over piles of newspapers stacked all around it. Speaking of which, I didn't mention the newspapers, did I? Well, let's just say old Leslie was a hoarder. He kept all sorts, papers, magazines, crockery, ornaments, you name it, all piled up in every room. Trying to navigate the house when I first got there was a nightmare. Those piles of paper and bits of furniture were laid out like a maze and must have been a nightmare to get around even when Leslie was alive. When the leak had happened, it had got all soaked, of course, the piles giving way, collapsing, knocking into one another and falling like dominoes. All sorts of things were broken and ruined, ancient teapots and wind-up clocks, furniture wrapped in plastic. Still, it was all soaked through, side tables rotting from the legs up. And as always, I asked Mr. Panayotis if he wanted to keep any of it, see if it was worth something. Some of it was easily Victorian, maybe older, but he told me what he always did. I replace with all new, he'd say. So all of it went into the skips, all the armchairs, sofas, sideboards, and all those newspapers, most of which had rotted to mulch anyway, and all the old china. Still, when Festus ran into Leslie's room, Mrs. Sherman stood back, expecting me to deal with it. She was clutching her fingers, which were bleeding, so I had to dash around, chasing this dog, knocking things over. Picture frames, piles of trash, stacks of dog food in tins. And eventually I snatched up the yapping dog and gave it back to Mrs. Sherman, asking her to please leave, which left me alone with Leslie's things. Now, I don't make a habit of going through a dead man's stuff. Mostly I try to avoid it because the danger is you end up starting to care about them somehow. And London is full of stories of lonely people, full of people who nobody cares about. And when you're a vulture, those are the only people you come across. They are gone, leaving no one, which is why you're there in the first place. But... And I don't know why, but still, I did start going through Leslie's things, and I shouldn't have. Folded up on a chair next to a desk by the window was the clothes he must have worn the day he died. Brown slacks, a check shirt, black belt, and faded white trainers. He'd been skinny, I could tell, and as I looked around at the photos, I saw pictures of him, gaunt, like a skeleton, 
taking photos of himself on days out. But lots of the photos weren't just of him. Most of them were with a woman, much older, who didn't look so much like him and must have been his mother. Dressed in black, high-collared, long dresses with grey hair hidden under a cap like she was from a different time. I found in the cupboards and wardrobes and drawers lots of pieces of writing scrawled in Leslie's hand. I didn't read them. Maybe I should have. Maybe they would have revealed something to me of the mysteries of the place. Instead, I got bin sacks and emptied the lot into them, tossing away everything I found, including his papers, his clothes, a lot of it. The hardest to dispose of and the strangest to find was all the tins. Mrs. Sherman had said he fed stray cats, which might have been true, but at the bottom of his wardrobe and under the bed there were cardboard boxes full of dog food. Tins and tins of it. And I know people say that old people and people with needs often spend more on food for their pets than they spend on food for themselves, but it was insane. Hundreds of cans stacked up on top of one another, and the wildest thing was, Leslie Alterman never had a dog. I offered the cans to Mrs. Sherman, but she said Festus was fussy about food, so I just chucked them all in the skip. It took me hours to get rid of it all, but that I did, and then I got back to cutting through into that secret room. Of course, you're dying to know what I found, and don't worry, I'll tell you. The image of it's burned into my brain, and I'll never forget it. Because... Once the saw had chewed through the last of the bricks and I started to lever them away, this gust of cold hit me, like a long, tired sigh. And within, I found the strangest place. The floorboards were bare and thick with dust, and the window at the back had been papered over with newspapers I later learned dated from the 1840s. Railway mania, opening at King's College, London, Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, all that. And on the far wall, there was a fireplace, old and decommissioned, but above it, there was a mantelpiece and a huge old mirror, spotted with age and cracks running right through it. Most disturbing, of course, was what was in the middle of the room. An old-looking rocking chair delicate and thin and sat within it was a corpse not just a corpse so much as a skeleton wearing a long black dress and a white cap with grey white hair escaping from it decayed of course and covered with dust then at its feet or her feet I should say there was a second skeleton that of a dog curled up like it was resting Well, I made a mistake then, because I called the cops. I should have called Mr. Panayotis first, but I didn't. I called him afterwards and he hung up on me. But still, I rang them and they closed the site while they exhumed her. And before long, there were newspaper people all round, all curious about what they were calling the House of Death. Nobody wants to own a place called the House of Death. And of course, the police wanted to speak to me and ask what was going on and so on. I declined to make much comment and whatever happened with Mr. Panayotis and his people about it, all I'll never know. I just sat in my van nearby for a couple of days, watching and waiting as they took the body away and all that. 
And eventually I got a call from someone who wasn't Mr. Panayotis telling me to get back to work, which I did. And that's when things started to get strange. You see, I don't like to differ over a job. I like to start early, work late and power through. That way, when my envelopes come, I know I've earned what comes to me. And as a consequence, I'm often alone in a place by myself until the early hours, which is a good time to work, so long as you do it quiet. Sure, you get the odd sound of a siren whizzing by, but mostly it's peaceful, especially when you're wearing earplugs. But after a time, I couldn't wear earplugs in that place, on account of the leaks. If you remember, I said I'd capped the pipes. I did this when I was stripping back before I figured out how I was going to re-plumb. But even just after the police and ambulance and all that left the place, I started to find spots of water. Drips all through the house. I looked at where they'd fallen, onto the floorboards and down the walls and so on, and tried to follow or trace them back to their source. But they didn't have sources. There weren't any pipes where the drips were falling. It was like they'd come from nowhere. So I stopped wearing my earplugs so I could hear them when they fell. Drip, drip, drip. It was mysterious, of course, freaky. And I tried calling Mr. Panayotis to tell him, but he wouldn't answer. So I did what I could, putting out buckets and so on to catch the water, and I tried to keep on working. The first thing I did, of course, was get into that room, the one I'd found in the wall. Although the authorities had taken the skeletons away, they'd left the rocking chair, which I figured had to be worth a few quid. I knew Mr. Panayotis would tell me to skip it, but instead I moved it downstairs, meaning to smuggle it off into my van to see if I could get a little money for it. I took down the mirror, which was a little hazardous, of course. It split into hundreds of tiny pieces as soon as I touched it, shards splintering and going everywhere. But I swept it all up, cleaned out the space, and remembered I still had all the furniture to move out of Leslie's room, so I went to do that. Only, when I did, Leslie's clothes were back where I'd found them. Brown slacks, check shirt, black belt, faded white trainers. I did a double take, of course, knowing I'd thrown them out, but I shook my head, picked them up, put them into the clinking bin bag with the shards and mirror and was about to start moving the desk in there when I heard the strangest sound downstairs. It was a clicking noise. Clickety-clackety, clickety-clack. And I knew that sound. It was the sound of a dog walking around, its claws on the floorboards. And that, combined with the dripping sounds pinging in the buckets, was... Well, it was unsettling. Naturally, I figured it must have been Festus somehow escaped from Mrs. Sherman's next door, so I cursed under my breath and went downstairs, hearing that sound carrying on, clickety-clackety, clickety-clack. When I got down there, I was furious. The buckets I'd laid out to catch the drips, not all of them, but most, had been knocked over, spilling water out onto the new floorboards I'd laid. Of course, I turned them up right ways, moving them back into their positions, and I ran from room to room looking for Festus, but the little beast, he wasn't there. What's more, the front and back doors were shut, so I figured maybe he'd come in, snuffled about, then left, and the door had closed after him. 
Anyway, it was late, maybe two in the morning, but I was so annoyed, I went round to Mrs. Sherman's place and rang her buzzer. She didn't answer at first, but then she came down, hair in curlers, face must with sleep. You're crazy, she said to me, working too hard. Festus is asleep in dog basket like good dog. You sleep too now. I sleep. It's night time. Time for sleeping. She closed the door on me. And I figured she was right. It was late and I was tired. So I went back to the house and mopped up the wet. Then thought, as a last act, to go back upstairs and toss out that bin bag. Only when I did, I noticed Leslie's clothes. Back in his room. Folded up. Just as I had first found them. This freaked me out, of course. So I grabbed them, tossed them in the bag, tied it off, then took it downstairs and slung it in the skip. I heard the pieces of mirror clinking and breaking, and I locked up, heading to the van and home to sleep. When I got to my place, though, I couldn't sleep. I just kept thinking about those drips, about the water coming from nowhere, knowing it wasn't me. For years I've been working with water, and as much as it's difficult, as much as it's wily, it has rules it obeys. It has to flow from somewhere, has a source. So after a few hours laid in bed, tossing and turning, I got dressed and went back. And what I saw there, well it made me angry, I'll say that much. I unlocked the door and inside I found not only had my buckets been moved and had water gotten everywhere, but there were paw prints trailed all about the house, all through the downstairs, up the staircase, all round the landing at the top and into Leslie's room. And these weren't little paws either, not like Festus, they were made by a mid to large sized dog. Plus, back in Leslie's room, and I couldn't believe it, I'm still not sure I do, even though there's no doubt about it, but still, right there, on his chair, I saw them, back again. His clothes and shoes, folded and left neatly in exactly the same positions. I stood there, kind of dumbfounded, looking at him, when, all of a sudden, the Nokia brick started ringing in my pocket. I answered, and it was Mr. Panayotis. You called. What happened now? He asked. So I told him. I can't explain it and I'm sorry, but the place is leaking. Leak? But you say you fixed leak. I did. All the pipes are capped. It doesn't make sense, but there's water here, everywhere. You can fix? He asked. I'll do my best, I said. But have your people been in here? Been in with a dog? What a dog? There is no dog. Well, someone's been in here, walking around with a dog, and things have moved. Is this your people? What people? My people? I have no people. No dog. You fix leak, fix house, okay? Then he hung up. And I could tell he was angry in the way he gets angry, which is quite quiet, but it's pretty impossible to ignore. So I got back to work, moving all the buckets and so on, and I tossed out Leslie's clothes again, carrying on with what I'd planned to do the night before, clearing out his room of old furniture. I took a hammer and dismantled the bed, 
I slung the mattress down the stairs, smashed up his desk, sideboard, drawers, chair, all of it, and I slung it all into the skip, making a dozen trips up and down until his room was completely empty of everything. No furniture, no clothes, nothing at all. Once I was feeling pleased with myself, I stood at the door of his room, looking into it. And that's when I noticed from where I was stood, a glint from inside the room to my left. You know, the room I'd opened up, the secret one. And I turned and looked and I saw there, in the middle of the floor, pieces of the broken mirror, right where the rocking chair had been just the day before. It was an uncanny thing, like someone had been trying to piece the bits of mirror back together like a jigsaw. There were only a few bits, but when I got near, I was in such a state of disbelief, I pulled off my respirator, dragged my hood down and looked with my bare eyes. I squatted, staring at the pieces of mirror, knowing I'd swept them all up, cleared out the whole room, yet there they were, shining with light, reflected from the sunshine, coming in through the old newspaper on the window pane. And there I was, crouched over them, looking down at my reflection, staring at myself. And I saw, over my shoulder, or above me maybe, a shape. A shadow maybe, but it was black, dark black, peering down and watching, hovering. I freaked out, of course, spinning round and looking, but there was nothing there, just empty space. Only... Out of nowhere, from the air above my head, a drip fell. I barely noticed it spiralling down from the ceiling. But then it landed, spattering, square in my eye, ice cold, making me blink. I gasped, of course, wiping my face with the back of my dirty, thick rubber glove, and I staggered backwards onto the pieces of broken mirror. They cracked beneath my boots and suddenly I heard that other sound. The clickety-clackety-clickety-clack blended with a new noise. It was a deep, guttural growl. My heart was thundering then, I'm not scared to say, and I dashed from the room, but the drips didn't stop. They were falling faster, not just in the places they'd been before, but everywhere, like it was raining inside. All that water dropping and dripping, spattering onto the newly laid floorboards. The sound of the dog's claws seemed louder to me, like it was running around downstairs, coming up the stairs. So I staggered towards the noise at first, to the spot at the top of the landing, near the bathroom door. Yet the noise ran up towards me, so I stepped back. I tried to move away from the sound, but I hadn't thought hadn't realised. I woke up hours later, covered in blood, soaking wet and cold. It was night by then and I knew I'd broken my arm, falling down from the bathroom door, through that empty room with its absent floor, onto the boards below. I cut my head, banged my whole body up, cracked some teeth. I was a mess, and my eye was swollen out so badly I could barely see. Even then, though, the drips were still falling, 
icy pitter-pattering. With the walls down, downstairs, I could see into the front room, to where she was sitting. That old woman, in her black dress, with her white-grey hair spinning out of her cap, in her rocking chair, smiling. She wasn't looking at me, just into space. The chair was moving, rolling on its runners, back and forth, back and forth. I lay there, staring for a minute, too afraid to move. Only then, I heard a dog bark. Whether it was her dog or Festus, I'll never know, but that sound was like a bullet from a starting gun. I leapt up, ran to the front door, holding my arm, struggled with the lock, got out, and I never went back. Of course, the brown envelope for that week never came. I was happy Mr. Panayotis never called me again. I wasn't minded to go back to his restaurant and ask about it. I had cash enough from the work I'd done to take some time off, let my arm heal up, my face and so on. But from time to time, work does lead me down that road, by that house. And I noticed every time I went by that it was looking more and more broken down. More and more rotten. Oh, I never went near it, but I always saw the shape of the rocking chair in the front window. Never clearly enough to know if there was someone sat in it. And one day I went by and I saw the whole house was gone. Knocked down, along with that garage that wasn't a garage. My guess is they'll turn the whole patch of land into a new build, but I don't want anything to do with it. After all, dirty work is easy enough to find in this city. But me, well, I've got standards. Hey Martin, it was your turn to write a story about a dog. Yeah, yeah, I I wanted to include a dog in a story for once. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. And I'm sure he was a very good boy, if slightly haunted. Well, you got two dogs. I got two dogs, you got Festus as well. Yeah, and a ghost dog, yeah. Yeah, that was great, I really enjoyed that story. It was very grotesque. I think some of the imagery might be a little bit strong for me, actually. Well, we had a leak in our house. We did have a leak in our house, so (laughs) some of it feels a little bit close to the bone. And obviously, lots of conversations with our plumber and various people who came in to do some work on our home, I guess, has inspired some of that. (laughs) I mean, I, I once met a plumber a few years ago. I mean, he was a workman in general. He did do all kinds of work. And he told me this story about how he had gone into a house where someone had died with the bath left on and the plug-in and he'd had to clear it out it is unimaginable it's horrendous so that really inspired me plus i kind of like that um there was also the possibility that he was hallucinating mm. because of all of the mold yeah and i kind of liked it was almost like the fairy spit 
yeah. the ice cold drip that fell in his eye that enabled him to then see the dog and the woman. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was kind of inspired by lots of like folklore stories, but also you know my friend David, who uh, is a paramedic, and he he used to tell me stories all the time of some of these circumstances in which corpses were found or things that he had to mm. deal with to exhume bodies. Some of them really really old from the ancient past, and some of them really really modern from people who sadly perished. And I was also really touched by a film that I saw quite a few years ago now called Dreams of a Life, which is a, a true story documentary about a woman who had died in her flat in central London and been there for three years with nobody realising that she was dead yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, so, I think the real horror in your story is that sense of dying alone. Yeah, that's it. I wanted to write a story about something that scares me, as mm. I always do, and that idea of dying alone, of lonely people, of poverty, also of dirty work, which I think is a whole yeah. interesting area of the economy. No, it's true. People really are about. kind of revolted by things to do with sewage, mould, rot, anything that's a little bit... <laughs> and people who work in those kinds of sectors of the economy are often paid really, really badly for Which the work that they do. Which is crazy because it should be incredibly highly paid given how undesirable it is for most people to want to do it. Yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, some people who live in more rarefied air are paid huge salaries yeah. to do, honestly, not very difficult things. So yeah, that's another thing that scares me about our economy uh, and about yes, London. Yes. So, so those are all my inspirations. Meanwhile, yours, clearly, as someone who's worked backstage at a number of theatres, partly inspired by that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think any, anyone who's um, toured theatre has worked in a rotting Victorian theatre <laughs> with um, treacherous stairs and tiny little smelly rooms. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was, I was slightly inspired by that. I wanted to include something that was a little bit more from my world. Yes. I mean, I think all our stories are kind of from our world. Mm, mm, um, for sure. And the idea that this, this thing inevitably happens. Yes when the call was made. And, you know, ghosts in theatres are... Yeah, fine old tradition. Well observed. Theatrical ghosts. Up and down this country, lots of haunted theatres uh, and often of actors, which I think is fun. Yes. Gotta say, though, I did feel a little bit sorry for Hugo. Yeah, I think you're, you're meant to. Um, it's the idea of this, this young man whose life is perhaps not going precisely as he would like it to. Yeah. And there's a bit of kind of this untapped rage and desire for revenge I think inside him which is reflected in the character he sings in the opera and then of course the ghost echoes the same words yes like, I did wonder let them all burn let's get them all <laughs> I did wonder towards the end if he was going to light a fire at the back of the theatre <laughs> so that was the ending I deleted really yeah I just thought it was a bit too obvious, so uh, I'd okay. leave it ambiguous as for the <laughs> listener to decide what Hugo did next, yeah, with uh, or without the aid of his uh, sailor-like ghost friend. <laughs> I, did, I, I think I probably would have gone for the obvious and torched the lot, but there we are. <laughs> well, in your imagination, the uh, the horrible old theatre is on fire. And then Definitely. your character can move in and strip all the plaster <laughs> off and find some up. horrible things. Yeah. <laughs> well, as always, thank you so much to everybody who has been engaging with us and sharing the podcast this week week we've been a bit weary so perhaps not as active on social media as we sometimes are but we really appreciate everyone who has been in touch and has shared news commented on posts and generally been so delightfully supportive in terms of our likers commenters and super sharers this week we need to say special thank yous to rob elaine sherry kate james lucy liz and kathleen on facebook 
Parsons Fictions, Galeria Malduce, Medieval Scribe, Neza Supergran, and Emily2017 on Instagram, and Raven Goddess, Paco, Grim Graves, The Celtic Druid, and Margaret Frey on Twitter. Please do join in with the Three Ravens community at all the usual places. That's facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, and Twitter via at Three Ravens Pod. And special thank yous to Elaine, Donna, Simon, Liz, Kelly, Michelle, Anya, and Alexandra for your comments about last week's episode. It's like people got a real kick out of the audience, Martin. Yeah. People very much like that story. I'm so glad. And they also really like the coal hole. We evidently freaked some people out with last week's stories. Now, hopefully the same can be said of this week's offerings. We also had some lovely, lovely reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, including from the boy Bamba, who wrote on iTunes, Brilliant folk history and conversation. Three Ravens is brilliant. It's a lovely, not too serious trip around England, serving up lots of funny, spooky, totally mad facts and stories of folklore and customs. Also loving the Thursday episodes of Beasts, Potions, Lost Arts and Wicked Things. Lots I'd heard of but didn't know much about. Keep up the great work, Martin and Eleanor. Thank you so much, the boy Bamba. So nice. It really is. And we'll definitely keep at it, don't you worry. <laughs> we also had a short but very nice review from Anonymous1548 on Apple Podcasts, who wrote, Three Ravens is fun. Very entertaining and good stories. Five stars. Can't argue with that. Thank you, Anonymous 1548. Yep. Thank you, Anonymous 1548. And thank you also to Fullerton42 on iTunes, who wrote, I've just heard my first episode, my hometown of Warwickshire, so I'll write a fuller review when I've heard more. But if you don't instantly love these guys of Warwick's, which I think is great, including our own joke, warmth and enthusiasm, then there's something missing from your soul. Can't wait to hear more. That's so kind. Thank you, Fullerton. 42 and not least for using our own shocking guy of Warwick fun <laughs> and one last one from Apple Podcasts Delia R wrote an entrancing subject presented by a delightful couple I've been listening to the three ravens since they got a shout out on the history of England so nearly from the first episode at bedtime folklore is nepenthe before dropping off I learned the difference between parchment and vellum. I found out that corn dollies are not always made in human shapes. Valuable info indeed. But just as pleasant are the folk tales and oldie timey craft ways as the friendly banter between Eleanor and Martin. This is always a tricky business banter, but in the best podcast, it's like being out with two companions who both amuse you. Well, that's so nice, Delia. Uh, and thank you so, so much for taking the time to write a review for us. Indeed, thank you to Fullerton42, Anonymous1548, The Boy Bamba, and anyone who's taken the time to write us one over recent weeks. We really, really appreciate it. And please know that everyone that's written really does help other people to find us. Yes, please, whether it's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stars on Spotify, or some other strange currency. <laughs> on your favourite podcatcher if you have five minutes please do write us a review even if it's short we love short and sweet yep. we'll read it out and we really really appreciate it of course and uh, if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to tons of exclusive content including our episodes early and ad free our stories as text versions and much much more do sign up to our Patreon for just $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and we'll be back tomorrow for our super Sarwain Halloween special this haunting season has been so busy we really hope everyone's been enjoying the episodes but i am about ready to rest like the dead yeah, me too but in the meantime while our shambling shades and uncanny phenomena have gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods our theme song is the traditional folk ballad three ravens performed by eleanor conlon and ben harbour and our logo is by ollie james dare the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. 
God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men With a down